Good morning, Grace. Our text for today is John 20, 19 through 23. I invite you to turn there as we read from, from Scripture this morning. Church, hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This ends the reading of God's holy word. All right, everybody, uh, take a deep breath. That song was legit, was it not? I mean, that was incredible. Can we give them a hand? That, that was amazing. Those guys are incredible. Wow, that was incredible. Well, you are in the right place this morning. Uh, we are talking about resurrection, and we are talking about Jesus' post-resurrection encounters. Um, with people who uh, meet Jesus after he's been raised from the dead. And it is an incredible series of events. Today, he's going to reintroduce himself back to the disciples in an upper room. So as we start today, I want you to understand the nature of the text that we're dealing with right now. Uh, this text is, and where we are right now, is the disciples have gathered together. They have regrouped. Uh, several of them have been away. Uh, they've been doing other things. As Jesus dies... Uh, literally their whole world implodes. And so what ends up happening for them is that, is that they find themselves scattered and not unified. So somewhere in the subsequent time after his death, they gather back together in a room to discuss things. And as they come back together to discuss things, they're also afraid. They're afraid because Jesus has been killed. Their leader has been destroyed in their minds. There's really not a clear understanding at this point of resurrection from the dead in the way that you and I know about it. Because remember, they're living this in real time, and as it's unfolding, the story and the drama before them is unfolding in real time. And so they don't really have a full understanding of, of resurrection. They have an understanding that somehow, some way, Jesus is supposed to do something after death, but they don't know that it's resurrection in this way. Mary Magdalene has already seen him. And Mary comes back and says, I've seen the risen Lord. Now, you have to realize when someone comes to you and says, I've seen something so extraordinary, it's natural for us to be a little bit skeptical. And so the disciples are very skeptical. They're skeptical of the idea that Mary, uh, maybe it's just Mary being Mary. Maybe, maybe she is just want to some kind of like exaggeration. Maybe she's just hallucinating. Maybe there's something wrong with Mary. As we enter the text today, this is the night of the morning that Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene. And so now he's about to reveal himself to all of the men. It's an important and not, not a small point that Jesus first introduced himself back to women. Now, here's, here's why this is important. In our modern day kind of, of feminist ideals, right, most women growing up in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, most women who live today don't think 
and can't really think in terms of what it must have been like to be a woman in first century Judea. So for the first thing that we want to recognize is that if John or any of the other apostles were writing a fake book about Jesus, they would never use the eyewitness account of a woman. And the reason for that was because women were somewhat devalued in the Old Testament or in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And, and one, of, one of the things was that a woman could not give testimony in open court. In order for a testimony to be considered substantial or even admissible in a court in that first century, it had to be given by two or three witnesses, only men. And so if John were making up this whole resurrection story, he'd never choose a woman. I mean, this would be the least credible source to be able to cite ever. But he does it anyway. And part of that is that Jesus reveals him first to Mary Magdalene because of the experience that Mary Magdalene had with Jesus. He profoundly transformed her life. He cast seven demons out of her. There was an alteration, not just in her circumstances, but in her soul. Mary loved Jesus. And of course, Mary Magdalene is not the mother of Mary, but just a friend of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is not the mother of Jesus, but just a friend of Jesus. And so as we enter the text today, Jesus is going to commission the disciples. But they're a sorry sort right now because they're not really in a place to be uh, commissioned to go out and do great things in behalf, on behalf of the name of Jesus because they're afraid and hiding basically in an upper room, a closet, if you will. Here's how we start. Verses 19 and 20, and then let's look at them a little bit deeper. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. It's very important that John mentions this. He mentions this to say, there's no one getting in and there's no one getting out. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's talk about this for a moment. The first thing that happens is on the first day of the week, like I said, this is Sunday night. This is the night in which this is the night of the revelation to Mary Magdalene. And now Mary is, is vindicated because Jesus comes in in this locked door circumstance and he reveals himself. But look at what happens. First and foremost, it says that they are in fear. They, these, these guys are, are, are fearful and powerless right now. They, they still have no concept that Jesus is about to blow open the doors of their life. No concept of it whatsoever. In fact, Jesus, just as he reveals himself in a moment, his first thing to them is, peace I give to you, right? And the reason why he says this is because almost every single angelic encounter in the Old Testament was preceded or was, was the angel's first statement to somebody that saw an angel was, peace be with you, you're not going to die, which is really kind of amazing, right? I mean, because it's an angel, can we just say that, that, I mean, I know that that's weird for some people to think of in a kind of a modern day, and we addressed this a little bit last week, that, 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 that the reality is some people think that the more progressive we become in our science, the, the more future-oriented we become in our technology, the less spiritual we become, but the evidence actually shows the opposite of that. And so we recognize as Christians that there is both a spiritual world that is visible and an invisible spiritual world as well. And every time one of these invisible angels would present themselves to the physical world, the physical world would be in terror. So people would fall to their face in worship, even of angels. And the angels would say, peace be with you. Get up. This is not, I'm not somebody to be worshipped. 
And so when Jesus comes in among them, they're already terrified that somebody's going to walk in the door. And then all of a the sudden, there's Jesus. So do you have, do you, I mean, do you have like family that plays practical jokes on you? Man, I do. And, and for some reason, some reason, uh, some reason it's actually gone into the office. I, I don't know what this is. So Rachel, who is our children's ministry person, um, one day I'm going to drop dead and it's going to be Rachel's fault. So I want all of you to tell the police, all right, and it's going to be her fault, right? If there's some suspicious heart attack, it's Rachel. Just go, oh, that was Rachel. Yeah. And, and here's why. Every time I walk in the office uh, or turn a corner or something, there she is and, and, and like hiding behind a door or a plant or something, and she just screams as loud as she can, right? I'm a nervous wreck. Like, I am a nervous wreck walking in. I, I walk in now like, you know, it's bizarre. Like, I'm paranoid that she's going to give me a heart attack. I sometimes feel my heart go, goo-goo, you know? Like, we need some defibrillators there, because I'm telling you, one day I'm going down. That's probably what it was like. All of a sudden, Jesus walks in, and everyone's like, boop, boop. You're like, oh, my gosh. Peace be with you. Now, peace be with you meant, hey, I want you to be aware that right now, there's actually no need to be fearful in your circumstances, because I am with you. And the reality of Jesus' presence is that it supersedes and transcends the circumstances of our everyday life. Sure, you're going to be afraid. Sure, you're going to go through bad times. You're going to be depressed. You're going to go through up times. You're going to go through down times. It's true. It's the human condition. It's called living in a fallen world. But when Jesus is there, the presence of Jesus brings a kind of calm, a kind of peace, because when you're connected to Jesus, you're connected to eternity. And nothing in the moment supersedes eternity. And Jesus comes in bearing all the weight of eternity. And he speaks to them, peace be with you all. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. I mean, it's amazing that Jesus still has to convince them, hey guys, it's me. I know I just walked through a wall, but here's my hands, here's my side. Now, you need to understand this because, again, looking at this from the perspective of a skeptic that's looking at the Bible, this story doesn't make any sense because the people who were closest to Jesus would certainly be the carriers of the story, but here they're still not fully convinced. Jesus walks through that door in that resurrected body, that new body that he has, somewhat like the body we have, somewhat different, obviously. He comes in, he presents himself to them. He says, look at my hands and look at my side. I want you to see I am the crucified Jesus. It's fascinating to me because here you've got the disciples who walk with Jesus. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him heal paralytic people. They saw him just by his voice heal the centurion's daughter. Over and over and over again, Jesus did these miraculous and incredible things, and now he still has to present evidence that he is who he says he is. The Bible records that James, who later became the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem, didn't, his brother, James, the brother of Jesus, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, think about it. That's a hard bar. How much would it take for you to believe your brother was God? I mean, James is like, okay, I guess you rose from the dead, whatever. 
You know, I mean, but after his resurrection, James becomes one of the most convinced. I want you to see that in the early church, Paul talks to the Corinthian church and he says this to them. He says, hey, Corinthians, who were doubting whether Jesus was actually bodily raised from the dead. He says, I don't want you to believe my word. I want you to talk to these eyewitnesses because these guys, and he names them. Go talk to those guys. They saw him. The early church was not based upon just by faith alone. The early church was based upon seeing is believing. And the reality is there's some of that still today. That Jesus is in the business of seeing and, and, and changing people's lives, and we're in the business of seeing and then following that up with believing. See, a closed door was not an obstacle to a resurrected, resurrected Jesus. A closed door has never been an obstacle to the resurrected Jesus. And we have people and friends and family members in our, in our lives that we think, well, you know what? They're never going to be a part of this. They're, they're never going to join in on this. I've got these family members. I love them to death. And they come to church on Christmas and Easter here because they have to, right? On Christmas and Easter. And, and listen, last Easter, just a little while ago, right? They came in. They said, that was the best Easter message that we've ever heard. Because that's all they've ever heard was Easter messages, right? So that's saying something right there, okay? Because that's the best Easter message that I've ever heard. And I saw a little spark. I saw just a little, little bit. And I'm praying for them. And I love them. And I want them to have the joy of the Jesus who says, peace be with you. They're not there yet. But you got people in your life, your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, people that you're with, the annoying boss that you work for, whatever, right? And we think to ourselves, man, they're too far. They're never going to accept Jesus. What I have is not commensurate with their need. And then we see the words of Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now keep that up there. God is talking here. And he's saying, look, I will give you a new heart. Not, not watch this, not, not me as the preacher or not you as the proclaimer, but God, through our words, through our witness, and through our life, as we engage with the world, God puts the new spirit in someone. He's going to put a new heart and a new spirit, and what? I will, God will put it within you. And I, notice, none of this is about you and me. It's just him. And I will remove the heart of stone. What does this mean? So people who have a heart of stone have a heart of stone. It, it is impossible. You can't permeate it, right? You can't get through it. No matter how much you try to work on it, no matter what you say, no matter what you witness, no matter what you do, you can't do it. Until the day he says, I will put it within you. And I'm going to take this heart of stone, and it is just so hard. It's impenetrable. And this heart of stone can be primarily for lost people, but it can also be believers too. Where we've put something inside our heart, a, a stronghold. Something where we've said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to release that, God. I'm not going to give what you're asking me to give you. I'm not going to let go of her. I'm not going to let go of him. I'm not going to let go of my money. I'm not going to let go of my time. I'm not going to let go of my kids. I'm not going to let go of my husband. I'm not going to let go of my wife. And over and over and over, that heart of stone and he says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And a heart of flesh is a beating heart. Before I became a pastor, um, I was a counselor. And before that, I wanted to be a doctor, a heart surgeon, a thoracic surgeon. 
And I got to do an internship here uh, with a guy named Patterson Mosley, who was a thoracic surgeon in town. And it's fascinating. Um, so we did, did this thing, and not to be too graphic, because I know that some of you have squeamish stomachs. But we got to, we opened it up, we opened them up, and there it is. And I'm standing right next to this, all scrubbed in and everything. And open the pericardial sac, which contains the heart, and there's just this heart. And you don't really understand a text like this unless you've seen a beating heart. It is so completely vulnerable. It is, I mean, just a little squeeze in this direction, a little pressure in this direction, and life ceases to exist. And God says, I'm going to take this really hard thing inside of you. I'm going to soften it so that my word can penetrate it. And every heartbeat that you have, every beat of that heart, every moment you're alive, I will be beating through you. I will be living through you. You are vulnerable, but I've got you. It's beautiful. And so when, when the text here, when we look at this, and Jesus shows them his hands, and, and he walks right through the door being locked, we have to realize there are no locked doors for Jesus. For a resurrected Jesus, there are no closed doors. There are no closed hearts. And so what this means is that for you and I, every person that we know, everybody in our sphere of influence is a potential person where God could put his spirit inside of them, take out their heart of stone and put inside of them a soft heart, a vulnerable heart, a heart that's willing to hear and be transformed, a heart that's willing to change. And as Christians, we need to foster and continue to put ourselves in the places in our life where we can have a soft heart toward God. And that requires us to be in a position of constant repentance and asking asking forgiveness of, of any and every sin that comes to our mind keeping short tabs with God and saying, you know what, Lord, I'm not a perfect guy. I don't get it right all the time, but here are my sins. I'm just going to lay them out before you. And as I lay them out before you, I just need you to take them and soften my heart so that the next thing you want to put inside of me, my heart is pliable. This is what I need from you, God. Look at what happens next in the text. It says, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. I love that, but it doesn't really do justice to the text. The word Glad here is really joyful, and it really goes back to something we've already looked at, John 16, verses 20 through 22. Now, Jesus, in John 16, 20 through 22, is, is, this is Jesus speaking, and he's talking to the disciples before he actually uh, dies. Before he, before he dies, this is what happens. Very truly, I tell you guys, right, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. As the world is screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the crowds turn against Jesus, all the disciples, filled with fear and worry and anxiety. They're in mourning. Jesus is about to die. They're in mourning. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Right? Great illustration, definitely written by a man. Right? Ladies, come on, you with me? But the point's true, right? You get that child. It's not like the pain totally goes away, but all of a sudden everything's put in context. And what Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, I'm about to die. And it's going to be terribly painful for you, but then it's going to be put into context. And so this is the context. When Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you, 
He's bringing them gladness. He's bringing them joy. And all of a sudden, all this fear and all this worry that's been in their hearts, all this time when they've been alone, begins to melt away. He showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, so he says it twice, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even now I am sending you. Powerless people are no obstacle to a resurrected Jesus. Powerless people are no obstacle to a resurrected Jesus. You know one of the things I hear all the time? I hear people say this to me all the time. Uh, Mike, I don't share Christ with anyone because I just don't know how to do it. Like, I don't share Christ with anyone because I'm just not sure when the right opportunities are, when the right moments are. And, and what I want to say to you guys is that powerless living, like living without the power, we're going to define this in a minute, but living without the power of God himself as your aid will always paralyze you. It always will. So yesterday I was sitting at the Alphand Inn and this lady, so I was sitting at the Alphand Inn and usually I just have my, this is what I'm doing. I, I sit there in one of the chairs and I have my phone and I'm going over the quotes and stuff like that for the service that we're doing right now, right? Just last minute prep, right? I do this all the time on Saturdays. So there I am doing this thing. And this lady walks by me. She looks at me. And I just kept going, you know. And then she kind of like, she, she went like this, looked at me. And then I was just back to doing this. And then I see her do this again, you know. And so I'm like, she might go to Grace. You know, I don't know her. I, you know. And so, uh, so by, by the way, if I don't say hi to you, like, if we don't know each other like super well, if I don't say hi to you when I'm out there, it's because I'm a little freaked out, just so you know. Like, you know, like, I don't know you girls, all of you. Like, like, so, you know, I mean, you can say, hey, Pastor Mike. Then I'll be like, hey, you know. But if you're just like, what's up? You know, I'm just, no, no. like, I'm just like, you know, okay. So, so this is kind of what's going on in my mind. She goes to Grace or there's something sketchy happening. So, so, so she kind of walks by again and I just look at her and she goes, hey. Um, and, and she pulls out this card. She goes, she goes, hey, um, this is my son's business card. If you're looking for real estate, you know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I, like, why would I be looking for real estate? I'm sitting in the Alphand Inn in a hotel right now, and I'm typing on my thing. Like, why would I be looking for real estate? But here's the weird thing. That morning, I was looking for real estate. Like, it was the weirdest thing in the world, you know? I'm like, get away from me, witch. I don't know what's going on. Like, it was really strange. And her son, like, he's not a joke. Like, I won't tell you his name because I don't embarrass him. But he works for Berkshire Hathaway, right? Like, he's, that's a legitimate real estate company. Those people are awesome. And, and, then, and then she goes, but, but he would love to sell you a house. I took the card. I was like, that's so great. Thank you. I go, you're a good mom. You know, and she goes, thanks. And then, like, 20 minutes later, they're leaving the hotel. And she's, and she's walking behind him, his wife, her husband. She goes, and I was like, it was the wildest thing. I'm just, and I, I swear the Lord does this just for sermon illustrations, right? I, I really believe that's true. But here's the thing. Here's, it's actually related to the sermon. All right, here we go. Um, but, but here's the thing. She was like, I saw her do the, the thing three times where she walked past me, you know? She was like, should I? No. Yeah, you know you should. You love your son. Come on, he needs business. You know, and so she, she got it, uh, the courage up to hand it off. That's the same thing. That's the commission that Jesus leaves, leaves us with. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I want you to take that Holy Spirit into the world. And you're going to be driven not by your power, strength, or gifting. 
you're going to be driven by my spirit because I can take hearts of stone and turn them into pliable hearts. And all it requires is for you to be bold and simply ask. All you got to do is make the ask. Everyone say, make the ask. Not everyone said, make the ask. Everyone say, make the ask. All right, you got to make the ask. If you don't make the ask, hey, would you like to come to church with me this weekend? My pastor's talking about this. You can always find out what this is on the website, right? Come to, come to dinner with us. Come out to lunch with us. Whatever it is, come to our small group. That'd be fantastic. Make the ask. Because without making the ask, and this is what Jesus is about to tell us right now, without making the ask, there are actually real-world consequences that happen when we don't do that. Verse 21 says this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father sends me here to you, I'm sending you to them. Disciples and Christians, I'm sending you to the world. Peace be with you. Because they're worried. I mean, like, I mean, this is a big deal. How do I do this, Jesus? Don't need to be worried. Peace be with you. I'm with you. And when I'm with you, eternity is with you. Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Ruach. That's the word. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Man, that's a moment. Jesus comes in and he goes, I want you to go. I want you to make the ask. And in order for you to make the ask, I'm going to breathe on you. Now, this breathing on, on, on the disciples is not something that's abnormal to the scriptures. It's not the first time it's happened. In fact, if you'll go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, or you can just actually look at it on the screen here. Genesis 2, 7 says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, a living soul, a living nefesh. So what's the, this is God and this is Genesis, right? I mean, this is the creation of the world. So the Lord God formed man with the dust. This Adam, this Adam, Adam lays lifeless. And the spirit breathes into him. And what happens is when the spirit breathes into him, all of a sudden this corpse, this fully formed, perfectly formed corpse becomes animated, becomes alive. You could say that Adam was given his soul in that moment. Here, the same word, the same concept is being communicated to the disciples. I'm going to breathe in you. Not on you, but in you. And what's that mean? I'm going to ruach inside of you. I'm going to put my life inside of you. So the disciples here are commissioned with a whole new life. Guys, becoming a Christian is not simply about following a code, a moral code. In fact, we're going to discuss that in a minute. It's primarily not following a moral code. It's about something so much larger than that. It's about being transformed from the inside out because God has placed his life on the inside of you. And when God places his life on the inside of you, the outside of you begins to change. Now, I need you to hear this because I really want to communicate this well. So look at this slide, the Holy Spirit. It says this. The Holy Spirit gives them life eternal. In this moment, when he breathes on them, he gives them eternal life. He breathes on them, gives them life eternal, and this life is forever. It can't be taken from them. Why? Because this life is not generated from them. 
It is the life of God inside them. The Holy Spirit brings life and empowers that life in us. So one thing that would be super helpful for your Christian life is to dissociate the idea of the Holy Spirit being your conscience. Because there's my conscience, which is creation, part of God's creation, created in the image of God, and then there's the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit inside of us is an independent entity, is a separate person who lives inside of us. Now, you need to understand that because this separate person, this separate person is what gives life to the outer person. I, I had this friend in junior high. I got into a lot of fights in junior high. I did. Like, you know, some of you guys know the way I grew up. It was pretty violent, so I was a pretty violent kid, and I just got into lots of fights. And, and, and I, to, to, to be fair to, to me, uh, I did fight a lot of people bigger than myself and who were not cool. So that, that helps a little bit, right? But one day I got and, uh, picked a fight with this guy. His name was Share. And Shari, uh, I, I, don't, I don't, it was like made of steel or something. I don't know. Like I punched him dead in his nose one day. And the guy just like looked at me like, I'm going to kill you now. Right? And just tore me apart. Right? Like it was just one of those moments. Right? So I had this friend, Willie Paldo. Right? Willie Paldo went on to play some like college ball. Willie was a big guy. Willie was like one of my best friends. So I was afraid of this guy, Shari, for a long time. But I was never afraid when Willie was with me. Never afraid. And just not afraid. Because every time Shari would kind of come up and say something, Willie would be like, what? You know, he'd be like, nothing. You know? And just kind of walk away. It was, it was kind of a weird thing. This was Jackson Heights Middle School. This was Oviedo High School. Right? But everywhere I went, so did he. And I always felt safe. I always felt secure. I always felt connected. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings peace to us, places that peace on the inside of us, because he is God. And that God on the inside of us is what propels the spiritual life on the outside of us. Many of us think that it's the other way around. We think that the moral life inside of us is generated by the good deeds that we do because we're good people. We're not. We're, we're, I'm, I'm sorry to bubble, like bust that bubble. I'm so glad you came to church today. You're a terrible person, you know? But that's not the point. That's, that's not it. The, the, the point is this. The point is that because we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all kind of messed up in our own and unique creative ways. Because we've blown it in some way, we need something that reconnects us back to God, something that connects us to him in the first place. And it can't be our moral behavior because we're not keeping a ledger of good deeds and neither is heaven. But the Holy Spirit is that which connects us to God. He is God. And so the Holy Spirit living inside of us has a profound impact on the disciples' outward life. These people who were fearful become fearless. They all died very terrible and hard deaths, but they went to their deaths filled with joy, filled with connectedness to God. They weren't bound by their sins over and over again. They were freed. They were released. And this is why the Bible gives us this very strange interpretation at the very end, or the very strange verses here that have caused a lot of trouble in the church. Verses 22 and 23. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now you have the Holy Spirit. You've got somebody with you where you can always be confident. You can always be sure. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not pull away from you. And he will lead you forever and ever and ever into the presence of the Lord. 
And then he says this. It's strange. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's talk about this for a second. So this has caused a huge, like, cataclysmic difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Roman Catholics believe that, that, or Roman Catholic doctrine, I should say, teaches that in the passage like this and a couple of others, this is Jesus giving permission to the, for the apostles to forgive sins of individuals. What we recognize is the Bible in a broad sense, and so we're gonna, what we're going to do with interpretation in the Bible is we're not going to look at one little piece of the Bible and say and generalize it to the whole. We're going to look at the whole and generalize it to the one. All right? And so when we do that, what we recognize is that the whole witness, the whole testimony of the gospel is that we don't see anyone forgiving anyone else's sins. Any man or any woman forgiving another person's sins in a spiritual sense, in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a vertical sense, right? To release them from their sin from heaven. So that's not what he's talking about, but it sure seems like it looks like that's what they're talking about. So what does it say? What does it mean? So actually, the, it says, if you forgive the sins... Um, in the original language here, it's probably better interpreted, uh, translated rather, uh, if, uh, if you release the sins of any, they are released of them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So within the whole context of what they're talking about right now is he's saying, I'm going to breathe the Holy Spirit upon you. You have to make the ask. But as you make the ask, you have to recognize that making the ask to people actually frees them from their sins. It releases them from their sins. As you proclaim the gospel to people who don't know the gospel, who honestly are, who are far from God and have no hope of heaven, when you teach and you preach the gospel to them, what happens now is they have hope of heaven. They are forgiven their sins. They are released from their sins. But if you don't preach, then their sins will not be remitted. If you don't proclaim the gospel to your family, if you don't proclaim the gospel to the person that in your head right now you're thinking there's no way I can do that, well, you can't, but the Holy Spirit of God who is empowering you can. He will take hard stones and turn them to soft stones. But if we don't preach the gospel, what ends up happening is that people don't come to Christ and they die in unremitted sin. And that's not what we want. There's a great story about this in the Bible that, that people miss the entire purpose of because we're so enamored with the large fish. His name is Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah is a prophet of God. And one day he gets swallowed by a giant fish, right? And he gets spit out on the shores of Nineveh. But what's the backstory to, to Jonah? Jonah hates the Ninevites. The Ninevites have been against Israel for a long, long time. And there's a racial issue at play too. Jonah is kind of a racist. He does not like the Ninevites. In fact, he hates them. And Jonah says to God, I'm not going to go and preach at Nineveh. And here's the reason why. Watch this. Here's the reason why. It illustrates perfectly our point this morning. Jonah says, I'm not going to go and preach. Now, God swallows him up to punish him, to bring him to his senses. Because God's like, Jonah, what you're about to say and what you're thinking right now is so heinous it's beyond the possibility for anybody who's an actual real believer. And this is Jonah's heart. Here it is. God, I'm not going to preach to the Ninevites because I know that you are a gracious and forgiving God. And if I go and preach to the Ninevites, they will turn in repentance and turn back to you. And I don't want that. I mean, think about that motivation for a second. I know God's faithful. That's why I'm going to withhold him from you. That's how bad you stink. You know, that's essentially what his heart was. This is exactly what he's talking about right here. 
He's saying, look, listen, if you don't preach the gospel, people will not be released from their sins and they'll die in those sins. And there's no need for it. Our preaching of the gospel, our proclamation is because we love. It's because we want to see people's hearts and minds changed. It's because we love as Paul said, we love as Christ loved us. And that is without condition. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. Not when we got all our stuff together and figured out why we were still screwing up. While we were God-hating, drinking fools, sleeping around with whoever we wanted to sleep around with, stealing whatever we wanted to steal, lying to whoever we wanted to steal, God comes in behind us and goes, I love you. And our minds go, why? I mean, why? Why would you possibly love something like me? And without question, without consideration, God says, because I choose you. The deepest form of love is not a feeling, it's a choice. When you look at all the gruff and ugly parts of a person and you say, I still choose you. That's love. And that's a love that cannot be broken. Will not be broken. One of the implications of loving this way is that I get to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. Is that I get to also remit sins. The Bible says this, that there's no one in the Bible, there's, there's, there's no one in the Bible that forgives sins that are vertical. In other words, you can't come to me and say, I cheated on my wife. And I go, by the power of grace and the pastorate, I absolve you of your sins. No, no, you're still in your sins because you're not reconciled with the one that you've offended. And I'm not talking about your wife or your husband. I'm talking about God himself. When David cheated on uh, um, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, he, when he confessed his sin before God, he said this, against you and against you alone have I sinned, O Lord. First and foremost, any sin is a violation, first and foremost, of our relationship with God, and then second with the person. And so here's, here's, here's the thing, that's the, the implication. We don't forgive sins this way. And by the way, that includes ourselves. Very, very popular today to say this phrase. Well, I've forgiven myself. Well, that's special. But but that doesn't work. You know, rob a bank, stand before a judge, and go, I've forgiven myself. You know, and he's going to go, awesome. Time to go to jail, right? Same thing. So, 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 So... So we don't forgive ourselves, but watch this. Horizontally, we can release people from sin. Vertically, that's God's job. Horizontally, we can release people from sin. And what this means basically is if I'm called to forgive, to, to forgive others the way that I have been forgiven without condition, what that means is that there are some people in my life, and this gets sticky, there's some people in my life and in your life that you just need to say without condition, I choose to forgive you. Now, it doesn't mean that you accept what they did as right. It doesn't mean that it validates what they did. It means you're releasing them because you're not walking around with bitterness and anger in your heart all the time. You get to say, I was wronged, and without condition, I forgive you. And here's what happens when you're the receiver of that, because I've, 
I've been the receiver of that kind of forgiveness. When you think like, I don't deserve that. And somebody comes in and says, I forgive you anyway, without conditions. You see God. You see God. I don't know how else to describe it other than to say like, when somebody unconditionally forgives you, even though you've done the wrong thing, you see God. Because that was the way in which Jesus showed them forgiveness, showed us forgiveness. And so we have this, we have this mandate to go out and preach the gospel, not on our own strength, our own gifting, our own powers, our own charisma. We go out and preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us insights into people's lives, who teaches us what we need to teach others, who shows us in the moment what to say. This is what the job of the Holy Spirit is for us. The Holy Spirit helps us see more clearly All you have to do is be willing to hear and listen. And you have to be bold enough to take a step and act. And when we do that, we're acting in the mission that God helps us to live in. And that mission is to seek and save the lost and to free them from their sins. First way we free people from their sins is by allowing God to do his job by proclaiming the gospel. If we don't proclaim the gospel, they're not released. They will never be released from their sins. As we preach the gospel and they move from self-work to trust in the Lord, all of a sudden everything begins to change. Now I've got the Holy Spirit on the inside of me. I don't have to stop doing, I don't have to stop drinking or sleeping around or living with my, my, my boyfriend or girlfriend or, or whatever the things are that are out there. I don't have to stop doing that. What I have to do is receive Jesus and then Jesus begins to change those things in me. He does. And I'm 100% for holiness but holiness that the Holy Spirit brings to us. And I want to tell you guys right now, just just as clearly as I can, your voice matters. This is why I ask you all the time to invite people to church, invite them to your small groups, help them be in community. Next week, we're going to look at Thomas, and Thomas misses all of this. He misses experiencing God because he's not in the church. He's not with the church. He's off doing his own thing. A lot of Christians today off doing their own thing. Help them find their way back. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us without condition. It is a spectacular grace that no one in this room deserves, none of us, God, least of all me. And yet, Father, you have extended that grace to us all. And Father, we want to be the kind of people that give the blessings that we have received. We want to be the kind of people that show the world the grace, goodness, and joy of Jesus, the peace that resides within. Give us courage. Help us Monday morning to wake up and automatically in our heads think, this is a day that I get to share the gospel with someone, someone in business, my children, my friends, the person who seems far from you. We ask God for eyes that can see and ears that will hear. In Jesus' name, amen.